Earlier this week, the normal work day, or as normal as I know it to be, having been here a whole week and a half, the normal work day here at Fifth Avenue Baptist was interrupted by a very important, unexpected visitor. Six-day-old baby Sadie, our secretary Donna Aker's newest granddaughter, came by to say hello along with her entourage, which included her mother Sarah, her sister Paisley, who's only 17 months old herself, and her great-grandmother Mama. Now, my children will attest that I am just about certifiably crazy when it comes to babies and young children. So you can imagine my delight when Donna called me and told me that the baby was here. It won't surprise you that I was the first in line to hold her. And to me, holding a sleeping baby is a holy thing. That tiny child reminds that we all started out completely dependent, completely helpless, and completely precious. Babies also remind that we are all children of God and we are all children to God. Completely dependent, completely helpless, and completely precious to the one who gives us life and sustains our every breath. At the same time, holding a baby reminds me how quickly things change. My youngest baby, Thomas, will have a birthday tomorrow and he will turn 11. Which I guess means I can no longer blame my baby weight on him now that he's reached into his second decade of life. Things do change quickly with babies. In the span of just one year, most babies triple their birth weight. Now, we're used to seeing that, but think about it for a minute. What if one of us tripled our birth weight in one year? Now, that would be a dramatic change. And then the first year of life turns into two, and then before you know it, they're going to kindergarten and then getting braces and driving and graduating and heading off into the world. It only takes 18 years For us to go from being a tiny armful to being out into the world as more or less adults. 18 years sure can go by fast. But there are other times and circumstances where 18 years can feel like an eternity. The woman in today's passage had spent 18 years bent, doubled over. Her back frozen in place, unable to straighten up. For 18 years, she couldn't gaze up into the sky or look her loved ones in the eye or stand tall and stretch her arms out to God's beautiful, amazing world. For 18 years, her vision of that beautiful, amazing world was cut in half, divided by the illness that kept her bound and a perpetual bow. I imagine that for her, 18 years in that frozen body must have seemed like an eternity. And then one day, she met Jesus. The woman came to worship at the synagogue, as she likely did every week of those 18 years, but this Sabbath, there was a new teacher 
Jesus. And this teacher notices her as soon as she walks into the crowd. And he sees her bent over and bound up. And right in the middle of his teaching, Jesus stops and he calls her over to himself. And he speaks words that are about to change her life forever. Woman, you are set free from your ailment. And then he lays his hands on her. And immediately, Luke tells us, she stood up straight and began praising God. After 18 years of being bound in that perpetual bow, she is unbound with one little touch. After 18 years of being frozen in place, she is set free. And all Jesus did was see her, call her forward, speak these words, and reach out and touch her. And in that moment, what was broken was healed. Immediately, she stands up straight, unbound and free. And standing up straight for the first time in almost two decades... The woman's first response is praise. After 18 years, healing has come in a matter of moments. Of course she's praising God. The chain breaker, the one who sets the captives free, who set her ancestors free from slavery in Egypt and exile in Babylon. Can't you just see her? Standing up there in the middle of the synagogue, right in front of everybody, Arms stretched out, face alight with joy, muscles and joints, remembering what it feels like to move again. And so, praise fills her body and spills out of her mouth out into the world. The world that she can now see and embrace fully. But not everyone in the synagogue that day is feeling quite so joyful about this miraculous healing. Not everyone is amazed and overwhelmed by seeing a sister in the faith set free from 18 years of being a prisoner in her own body. Not everyone is moved to praise God in that moment. The leader of the synagogue is not praising And in fact, scripture tells us he is indignant. I love that word. He's indignant. He is righteously angry and offended. Because according to the establishment interpretation, Jesus has right there in front of God and everybody broken the fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy. Exodus 29 through 11 explains... Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your town. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, but rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. In other words... We get to stop working on the Sabbath 
Sisters and brothers, this is good news. Sabbath is a gift from God written into the Ten Commandments, a day of rest and remembrance given for us so that we as God's people can emulate our Lord and take one day to step back and be grateful. And we trust that in that one day when we aren't working, God will still sustain us, even as we refrain and rest and reflect and renew. But a problem arose for us humans as we tried to figure out just what activities counted as work on the Sabbath. Was untying your donkey so he could go get a drink of water work? Was lighting a fire work? Was cooking work? How far could you walk on the Sabbath before it was considered work and therefore not permissible? Isn't that just like us humans? To take something that was meant to be a gift for us and weigh it down and turn it into a curse of rules and regulations. Over the years, these specific Sabbath rules about what was necessary for survival and therefore not work, for example, untying your donkey and letting him have a drink of water so he would not collapse and die on you, that wasn't work. You were allowed to do that. But other things were work, like, say, finishing plowing that final acre you didn't get to on the day before because you knocked off early to go visit with your friends. No, that was work. It wasn't permissible, and it had to wait until Monday to get done. All of these rules and regulations about what was necessary, what was not necessary, what was permissible and not permissible, that went into a book called The Mishnah. Now, quick spoiler alert for all of you who were just about to go home right after the service and Google the Mishnah. I'll go ahead and tell you, lighting a fire on the Sabbath was work, and you couldn't do it. But that was good news for all the first century cooks. Since you couldn't light a fire, you couldn't cook dinner. Now, it's easy in this passage to make the leader of the synagogue into sort of a cartoonish bad guy. But it's important to note that he and the other religious authorities in that day viewed their role as preservers of God's law, keepers of the religious order. And they took this role and responsibility very seriously. So according to the strictest interpretation of those Mishnah rules... Jesus has broken the Sabbath. The act of healing wasn't technically necessary for survival. And so it wasn't permissible on the Sabbath. Therefore, according to this logic, the miracle of healing that Jesus has just enacted right before everybody's very eyes was not to be celebrated but condemned as a breach of the fourth commandment. According to the rules, healing this woman, freeing her from 18 years of crippling infirmity, was wrong. Not in and of itself, but because of the day on which it was done. So, in a painfully passive-aggressive way, the leader of the synagogue speaks up. He raises an objection, but he doesn't address Jesus directly. 
Instead, he addresses the crowd, and he says to them, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on these days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. There's so much wrong with this response that it's hard to know where to start. As if the woman was at fault for being healed on the Sabbath. As if she had gone in that day like a person on the price is right, running down the aisle. Heal me, heal me. Jesus chose her that day. And then my favorite part of the leader's assumption is as if she could have just come on any other day of the week and been healed then. No, there wasn't anybody at that synagogue who could heal her. She definitely would not have missed that memo and not for 18 years. No, the only one with the power to set her free did so the moment he saw her in the crowd. And he's not about to let her be blamed by some sideways swipe from a rule-bound critic. Jesus has already declared in another passage in Luke, back in chapter 6, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He said, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? when his critics questioned him back in that passage. And now the Lord of the Sabbath is living out his calling, doing good on the Sabbath, saving a life on the Sabbath, setting a woman free on the Sabbath, and thus keeping it holy. You hypocrites, Jesus says to the leader of the synagogue, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? In other words, so you're telling me you'd untie your donkey for a drink of water, but you won't allow your very own sister to be healed unbound from her crippling illness. And I imagine the leader of the synagogue was thinking, well, Jesus, when you put it that way, it's kind of hard to disagree with him, isn't it? With Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, the rules and restrictions are not the focus. God is. We are. As one scholar I read put it, what better day could there be to free this woman from bondage than the Sabbath? The day set aside for the Lord, the one who heals, the one who frees, the one who unbinds. Jesus came to fulfill God's law in all its ways, to free us from all that binds us, keeps us stuck, bound up, living paralyzed by the weight of rules and expectations, and shoulds, and oughts, and sin, and fears, and shame. Everything that is the opposite of the freedom that we find in Christ Jesus. Which means that Jesus was not there that day just to free that woman. He was also there that day to free the leader of the synagogue. All of those people were just as bound up and bent over and stuck seeing the world from a halfway vision 
as the woman ever was. It's just that her bound-up state happened to be visible from the outside, something she couldn't hide. Their bound-up state was internal, a tightly wound, intricate system of rules and judgments with centuries of layers, one on top of the other, for which they felt intensely responsible. So it seems to me that one of the reasons Jesus speaks so sharply to that synagogue leader was to help jar him out of his stuckness, to unbind him from the heavy chains of keeping all those rules carefully in place. Jesus wants him to see that healing this woman on the Sabbath day is necessary, not contrary to the Sabbath at all, but actually fulfilling it completely, honoring God by healing this daughter of Abraham, who is far more precious to God than all of the rules and regulations that have hog-tied the Sabbath for centuries. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath at all. He was setting it free from all of the layers that had weighed it down, just as he set free the woman who was bent over, and just as he was offering to set free the synagogue leader that day. And just as he sets us free from whatever binds us and keeps us from living into the abundant life Jesus has for every single one of us. I recently read a piece written by a pastor friend who decided to take a group kayaking trip on Lake Superior. Although she'd never been kayaking before and didn't know anybody who was in her group. But as a hard-working, high-achieving perfectionist, Julie was ready. She went on her kayaking trip, having read up on it, of course, and then when she got there, she paid very close attention to the two days of training, everything the guide said she absorbed. But she did have a little trouble with one of his instructions. Just relax. Let the paddle do the work, or you'll wear yourself out. So when they set out on the lake for the real thing in that very cold water, hardworking, high-achieving, perfectionist Pastor Julie says, I clenched that paddle with determined hands, and I thrust it into the water as if I were digging a ditch. Hour after hour, mile after white-capped mile, I waged assault on Lake Superior. The others in the group were laughing and chatting with each other as they went across the water on their kayaks. But I was breathing too hard to laugh. Plus, it's hard to feel chatty when rigor mortis is setting in. (laughs) Near the end of that first day, the guide paddled over to her to check on Julie, and he commiserated with her. And he said, you're not having much fun, are you? And Julie, tears starting to run down her face, said, I don't think I can do this. Trust me, the guide said. It's better if you don't clench. Relax your grip, and you can go for miles. Breathe. 
Be mindful of God's beauty all around you. The silence, the feel of your paddle slicing the velvet water. Not only will you go farther, but you'll actually enjoy the journey. So the next day, rested and tanked up on ibuprofen and prayer, Julie did relax her grip. She breathed, and she paddled contentedly for miles. The journey really was far more beautiful and enjoyable that way. Relax, and you can go for miles. Sisters and brothers, we were created for the freedom we find in Jesus Christ. He came to unbind us from whatever keeps us so rigidly clenched, paralyzed and stuck, unable to embrace the abundant life we can find only in him. Like he saw the woman in the crowd that day, Jesus sees our stuckness and reaches out to set us free. Two, from whatever it is that binds us. He longs for us to trust him as our guide, more than the rules, more than the work of our own hands, more than the false promises our culture offers. Being the humans that we are, all of us have our stuck places. Those tendencies, behaviors, patterns of thought, false beliefs, that keep us bound up, stuck, unable to see the whole picture of the freedom we can find in Jesus Christ. From perfectionism to legalism to addiction in all of its many life-sapping forms, we're all bound up somehow. On this Sabbath day, I pray that we will see in ourselves the stuck places that we need to offer to God, the only one who can unbind us and set us free. May we this day hear him saying also to us, my child, you are set free. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, let us pray.